Hi everybody, thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast. Today I have Amna Khalid. She is a professor at Carleton, and she also is the former fellow, John Stuart Mill Fellow at the Heterodox Academy. And with me today is one of my soon-to-be new co-hosts, David Bernstein. He and I are working together with Counterweight, and he uh, runs you know, the business operations for Counterweight. He is also working with Alana Redstone to start a, a training called Viewpoint for Viewpoint Diversity in Workplaces. So we, uh, we're excited to have Amna on. She is uh, a huge proponent of Viewpoint Diversity. And that's really what we're here to talk about today. So Amna, before we get started, you know, my podcast is Hold My Drink. <clears throat> so I ask everyone what, what they're drinking. You don't have to have a drink, but if you do, what are we having for this conversation? I really wish I could say I was drinking tequila, but <laughs> it's not that hour of the day. So I'm afraid it's only water right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll have to just, that is always the problem. We should just record later and we can all drink tequila. David, do you have anything fun to drink? Just coffee. It's that time of day. Okay. Well, so it is though Friday and it is Friday afternoon. So I'm trying to like up my game because I'm getting boring with my drinks. I, like, I have the same thing. So I found like I had this much left of rum, which I hadn't had, like literally, I think it was like a year old. So I put that in and I made like a fruit punch which I think like that's what rum is for, fruit punch, right? Mm -hmm. There you go. So nice. rum looks punch, good. That's me. So, okay. So with that said, now that we've introduced our drinks, um, Amna, tell us about heterodoxy. What does it mean to you? What does it mean, uh, you know, in your life? And how do we get to that place of viewpoint diversity? Where, where are we lacking in that conversation? Wow, so this is a big question, um, yeah, and I'll, <laughs> I'll try and tackle it. Um, for me, heterodoxy really means uh, being able to think outside the box and to be uh, thinking for yourself, really. So, and not being confined by what the consensus or seeming consensus is. So to give you a little bit of history um, in terms of what heterodoxy means to me, you know, I, I was born in Pakistan, um, grew up in Pakistan. And as um, I'm sure all of your listeners know, but for those who don't, you know, it's a series of dictatorships and it's also a Muslim country. So there have been serious constraints to speaking up and saying certain things and, um, being heterodox can have serious costs in that kind of society. So this is something which I struggled with. And that's part of the reason, even, even as an undergraduate, where, you know, the idea is that at college, you should be able to speak freely and question. There were limits as to what you could say and what you could question, the kinds of questions you could ask. So for me, it became incredibly important to um, 
have a space where I could think freely and where I could speak with people who do not think like me to really wrestle with ideas and to grow. And it is for that reason that I decided to um, leave Pakistan and, and you know, go abroad to study and, and develop in that fashion. So for me, heterodoxy to begin with is thinking outside the box and not being scared to challenge what seems to be the orthodoxy in place, very broadly speaking. Now, where are we lacking? Now, if that is a big question, do you want to try and narrow that a little for me? And I'm happy to. Um... Well, I, you know, just based on what you just said, and I love what you said, you know, I love to talk to people who think differently than me. Differently than me. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how we learn. That's how we grow. And even if I disagree, I love to be in conversation where there's disagreement. But I feel that we have uh, those conversations that are hard, people shy away from them now. And, you know, you probably see that also in a university setting, Um, we have to, I feel like we have to be, we're walking on eggshells. So I guess what my thing is, where are we lacking is how do we, I I guess, let me change that and say, how do we promote heterodox, heterodoxy in our everyday lives, in our workplaces, in our colleges? Because what I, I guess my question is saying, you know, what are we missing is it was a little bit front loaded where <laughs> I believe that we are missing something. <laughs> no, it's, it's a really good question. Um, I think to think about why we are lacking heterodoxy or diversity of viewpoints, I think that there are two key things to think about. One is what is the cost of being heterodox today? And that is critical over here. And the second thing I'd say is how are we thinking about diversity? Um, And what is the value that we see in diversity? And both of these things are informing the kind of broader culture around difficult conversations. So to talk about the cost of heterodoxy, um, I think there are varying levels of costs of heterodoxy or speaking your mind. For someone in my profession as a professor, I think, for instance, adjunct faculty and contingent faculty have real material costs for speaking out and challenging orthodoxies. They they may lose their job. They may um, lose grants that they've applied for. So there are those conditions that inform. And that's precisely why, um, in my mind, tenure is such a privilege. It's a privilege in a good way, where once you earn tenure, you should be able to speak your mind without any fear whatsoever. And what is sad to me is that today we find there are lots of tenured faculty who are also struggling to speak their minds. And that's reflective of a broader culture, I think, where disagreement is undervalued and is seen as conflictual. Um, Conflictual people are seen as problematic. And I think it's also, it's no longer about the material costs, but it's about the social costs of speaking out. So what does it mean when you contradict um, someone or challenge someone? What does it mean in terms of how you're going to be viewed by your peers, by your friends, and who you're going to lose uh, contact with, or whose respect or admiration do you lose? And these are big pieces that I think we're not talking about when we talk about why is it that we are not in a society or in a place where um, contradictions or different opinions are entertained in a meaningful way. But the second thing that I was talking about was diversity. We've all, we all seem to agree there's consensus um, that diversity is a good thing. And we all want the benefits of diversity, but what we're not realizing is that the benefits of diversity do not come easily. 
they are something that you cannot have it without conflict and contention and disagreement. That is part of the process. And by trying to eliminate that, because we don't put any value on conflict or um, contention, uh, and still hoping to reap the benefits, what we're coming up with are these constrained kind of trainings or systems, which are paying lip service to them, but not really delving deep into the heart of the work of actually pushing yourself forward in meaningful ways and reaping the benefits of diversity. Yeah, so you're in an academic setting. Mm -hmm. um, how do some of these conflicts play out specifically in academia? Wow, again, a really big question. <laughs> I think they play out in many, many ways. Um, to begin with, I think campus culture and what is considered um, acceptable to say and not say. I see this happening both within the classroom among my students, outside of the classroom, conversations around the cafeteria, but it's not just the students. What's troubling to me is also that we find these kinds of um, barriers to speaking openly among faculty as well. And that's where I find it deeply concerning because if we cannot speak and disagree with each other as thinking individuals who are in the business of teaching how to think, then really I think we lack the moral conviction to walk into our classrooms and expect our students to do the same. Um, and then it comes to me as no surprise that our democracy is in the state that it is where we are unable to civilly disagree and move the conversation forward and instead we resort to violence or name calling or shaming. So um, we are very interested in how this plays out in the workplace. And we know that there's been research, and I think you've written on it as well, on how these diversity models are working or not working in the workplace. What does the research show about implicit bias training and some of the other current models on the shelf in various corporate and organizational settings? So the research on diversity training is, um, clearly shows that in most cases, these kinds of trainings and the way they're formulating categories are ineffective. And in certain cases, they're not only just ineffective um, or benign, they're actually harmful, particularly when it comes to mandatory training. And this really should come as no surprise. In some ways, I feel like it's common sense. When people are forced to do something, they they resist it and they build up resentment towards it. So when you force people to think about A, themselves in a particular and fixed category, and then force them to think about others as belonging to a different kind of category, then it's small wonder that people don't want to do that. We are complex creatures and we do not like being labeled and boxed in in ways that um, go against our complexity or our the different ways in that, we, that try and simplify who we are. So it comes as no surprise then that these mandatory trainings have been shown to actually cause harm and create more division in the workplace than actually bringing people together or reaping the benefits of diversity, as I was mentioning earlier. So Robin D'Angelo's famous book, White Fragility, really provides a very prescriptive framework about what racism is and who's responsible for it. And um, there, are, there are people who say, well, that in particular um, relies on what's called standpoint theory, that, mm. that, um, that one standpoint 
as a marginalized community allows one to define racism or define anti-Semitism or anti-Muslim bigotry. And that it's really the job of the recipient of that to, to abide by what the marginalized person says. How do you think that plays out, particularly in the workplace? So there are two things that I'd like to say about this in this kind of framing of um, race and uh, bias. One is these framings, like D'Angelo's framing, takes race to be a trans-historical category. That is not the case. Race is a lot more fluid. It has had different meanings at different time periods. And this, um, the, the D'Angelo framing collapses it and sees it as uh, simple, and as definitive. So to me, in my mind, the last laugh is of the Victorian scientists who saw this as a biological category, and we debunked that. We showed that race has no biological basis. It's a social construct, which is not to say that it's any less real, yet I feel the way we're talking about it now is we're trying to box people back into these biological categories and see race as fixed, not just in time, but across time as well. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing about standpoint theory, you know, standpoint theory, I don't want to just poo-poo the whole thing. I think it, it brought something very useful um, for us to engage with and to think about experience of people in interesting ways. But privileging experience in this way that we only consider impact and not intention, where we think that articulating something means endorsing it, is making us dumber. That's just the basic um, you know, the bottom line of it, we're becoming dumber because we're unable to recognize that there is a whole series of things that happens between someone saying something and someone perceiving it. And there are different frameworks that come into, that may conflict, they may overlap, and that you cannot reduce it purely to the experience of something. Because if you begin to go down that route and you say that you can only speak from personal experience, what we'll find is that increasingly people will not only not be able to relate to each other, they'll only be able to speak from their own personal experience. This is the antithesis of imagination, which is at the heart of being curious, which is at the heart of building relationships, which is at the heart of really seeing beyond yourself. So if you are going to start stamping out imagination in the name of experience, you're really eventually just hurting yourself because you're limiting how far you can grow. Um, so if you've looked at what's wrong with the current state of diversity training, DEI, I think now it's DEIB, including belonging. Um, well, I haven't heard that. Okay. That's it. That's a new one. Um, okay. So, um, <laughs> I can't keep up with the alphabet soup. <laughs> okay. It is an expanding one. Um, if you were to reimagine diversity training yourself, if you had to go in and, and rethink what it would be like in a company, how would you do it differently? Right. Um, first, I would reframe it. I would say it's not diversity training. It would really be an education. And this is, again, we're beginning to think that training can somehow substitute or stand in for education. And that's not possible. And we try to, the training model takes it as, you know, you do this one module and you're going to know everything. That's not how these things work. So the first thing that I would do is actually go inside and talk to people and talk about the history of these categories, talk about the histories of identities. You know, we now, we, we talk about white supremacy. What does it mean to be white? Well, 
not everyone who we think of as white today was always white. These categories have expanded and contracted in different ways. They're very, very historically contingent. So to me, and it, it will come as no surprise, I am an historian, um, engaging with history is the place to begin, to really start understanding how do these ideas and these categories develop over time? How do they shift in relation to what political pressures are they shifting? And then once you have, you begin to understand how um, uh, constructed these categories are and how much they change over time, you then begin to see that people cannot be fit into little boxes, but that they, the only thing that's transhistorical is the individual. Mm -hmm. And you begin to appreciate people for who they are. And that, that may be a collection of labels. It may be a different um, combination of all kinds of viewpoints, uh, which you can't neatly fit into a box. So I would start, if I walked into a, a workplace and to address your question head on, I would start with what is the history of, if we're talking about race or identity, how have these, what is the his, historical trajectory that has brought us to the point where we define these identities in the way that, that we do? And I think that should be the starting point. Um, part of the problem with the diversity frameworks that are being used right now is precisely this, that they see these categories as fixed. And I feel like we've come full circle. Like I was saying, we're going back to defining these things as biologically fixed, and that is not how they are. So I would begin with talking about the history. I would begin with getting people in the workplace, like if I were to do a workshop, to talk about their identities and the complexities of their identities. So contrary to say, I've recently been um, enrolled in some kind of mandatory training, um, much to my dismay, but what I find over there is this kind of rhetoric that people of color you know, see the world through a racialized lens. Well, that's not true. One, um, I think it flattens and completely oversimplifies uh, our experiences. Plus also these categories like people of color, you know, I would like to talk about individuals and who they are and what are the experiences that have made them who they are and make them believe the things they believe. Um, people of color in itself is a very problematic category. Uh, and I, I can talk more and more about this and we can, um, but again, going back to your question, I would begin with history and I would begin with people's individual sense of self and what is important to them. And of course, race and ethnicity are important parts of what make us, but it's important also to show people how these things have not been fixed and are not static, that they evolve over time so that you get a, you get a sense of your own history um, through generations. Uh, and what you bring into a workplace. I might add to that, actually, if you don't mind, David, you, one of the things that I'm working on uh, with some no, new, and I love that you said, let's not call it training, let's call it education. That's, that's, that's key. Um, but one of the things that has worked with me, and now I'm trying to work with my co-author to kind of create more of a framework for it, is ancestry. And so you brought in history. And if people knew their full ancestry, um, and knew, you know, so my co-author Wink, he's, you know, a black American, but I mean, he is from, I mean, I think he's got ties to, to, he's part Jewish, which he found out through ancestry, you know, he's got so many, and if you knew that full richness, and then see, so when we met, he had me do my ancestry, and I mean, it's been fascinating, and so I went back and I found uh, black cousins, you know, 
remove cusses and we've started communicating together. And so that creates a not only um, a history, a family history, a more, much more complex family history, but it also creates a, a, a community and a conversation that I don't think we're, again, you know, I don't think, I don't think we're having, but I, I really love the idea of history. And I think for us, or for me specifically, the idea of ancestry and how that really plays into it. Because when we know our full selves and the complexities within, I mean, it, it becomes much more fun. So can I just build on that? I mean, there is an interesting tension that I find we're grappling with over here. One is, yes, with the, with the likes of ancestry and these tests like 23andMe, what they're doing is they're breaking down these notions of biologically discrete individuals or categories. Yet at the same time, what we're finding in these trainings is we're pushing back against that. And I think maybe it is a moment, it, we are in a particular time where those, that tension is is pulling us in two different directions because we're getting two different kinds of signals and mm -hmm. it is in moments of anxiety and ambiguity that we try and latch on to fixed categories that is a well-known human instinct and so in some ways it's not a surprise that some of these diversity trainings are approaching it with that kind of um framework where we can fix people um, and it might really be a reaction to these other ways of thinking about the self which are breaking down these ideas of who we are you find out you're part native american you find out you're part indian you find out you're part chinese i mean and and what do you make of that how do you create a sense of self in that space where all of these things are feeding into who you are um, and I think there are interesting and more creative ways of doing it. Unfortunately, one, I, 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 would, I would argue that uh, the D'Angelo and Kendi kinds of models are a knee-jerk reaction, perhaps, to this complexity. So <clears throat> I want to try out a thesis on you. Um, so, you know, we, the, the diversity idea in the workplace has evolved over time um, to become sort of the CRT training that we have in many workplaces today. Um, and it's based on a model of, I would call representational diversity of, of ethnicity, of race, of gender, of sexual orientation and the like. There's another concept of diversity or there are probably several other axes of diversity, including viewpoint diversity. One could talk about cognitive diversity as well. Um, and yet my thesis is that, that the ideology that's come packaged with representational diversity is devouring viewpoint diversity so that we really snuffed out that category of diversity from what we think of the workplace. It, the, the problem is that representational diversity is not gonna completely go away as a category because our laws are built around it. Our workplaces have been set up in that way. So we're, we're not really starting from zero. We're starting with something that has to be incorporated in some way, shape or form in our workplaces. And there is value and importance to having men and women in your workplace. I mean, if you've ever been to an all male workplace, it's not, it's got problems. And I'm, I, I suspect same with an all female workplace as well. Um, and so I'm wondering how we might be able to restore, if you think I'm right, the balance between um, viewpoint diversity, maybe cognitive diversity and representational diversity in the way we think about it in either the workplace or an academic setting or any other setting. It's an excellent question. Yeah, great question. So here's how I think about it. I think the true value of diversity is actually viewpoint diversity. Right? It's the fact that we can bring different ways of thinking to the table. Now, the reason that has been associated with representational diversity is, is for very good, you know, there is a good reason for that because people usually 
who come from different demographic backgrounds do have different experiences that bring to bear on how they understand the world. And that different understanding is really what we're after. We're trying to engage those, that's the true value of diversity. And because of the ways in which society has been stratified and organized, it so happens that demographic diversity maps onto viewpoint diversity. And and insofar as, um, but, but, but the trouble is that we've stopped over that, right? We've taken that as the indicator of viewpoint diversity and then forgotten that the actual goal was viewpoint diversity and we've got stuck on demographic diversity as a way of reaching that end goal. And this is what I'm saying, we, do, we are not thinking about diversity in the right way. So you can have, I don't know if this was common in the US, but there's a brand called Benetton and they used to have these ads with everyone from every color across the world. You know, you can have a Benetton ad of people, but if they think the same way, there is no diversity over there. There's no genuine diversity. So. The question is, how do we engage genuine diversity? Um, and there's no simple answer. This is the other problem. I find that we are trying to find a one model fits all, right? Like there's going to be one solution and one answer and we're going to have it. It's not going to happen in that way. And it's going to be a constant back and forth and there's going to be a tension. And this is why, this is, this is why, this is why it's education and not training. Because if it was training, we would have a simple model, we could put it in place and it'll happen. But education is about, you know, really making your noodle work in new and different ways. And that, the, I do not have a simple answer for you, is the answer. And I think the problem is we, we all want simple answers. We want a quick, like, how to be an anti-racist. Teach me, I will do it. And then I am an anti-racist. It's a new label I'm going to take on. It's not like that. It's far more complex and you will need legislative action and uh, you know policy, but you also need to, every time you institutionalize something or codify something, it loses a little bit of that value that you're trying to codify. And so it's a constant struggle between these two things. You're never ever going to have a model or uh, a training that's going to achieve what you want. Um, the spirit, of the law and the letter of the law, there's always a space between them that will not be bridged. And that's where we really need to keep working. I have one more question, if that's okay. Um, so reverting to uh, my own standpoint perspective, um, which is I, I became aware of these problems when I went through my own sort of CRT diversity training horror story, right? Um, do you have one experience that stands out in your life, maybe you won't identify the particulars, to, uh, but that, but the dynamics, perhaps you can, of of going through something that made you think that this is not the way. I'm going to take a minute to think about this. Sure. <laughs> Are you asking like the first time I thought this is not the way, or more recently? It can be either. either. Whatever story you like to share. Sure. Right. So I, I will share a story. Right. So as I as I mentioned, in, in a particular context, I'm having to undergo mandatory 
anti-racism training right now. And as part of that, we have been broken up into different affinity groups. Um, the categories of these affinity groups are in themselves very problematic. And um, there was BIPOC uh, as was one category, one was white, one was um, all races, <laughs> they had these amorphous categories. And anyhow, it, in my affinity group, we had five people and I was the only quote unquote BIPOC person. Um, and we started talking and I decided that I wanted to upend all the assumptions built into this training. And I started that when we had to do introductions, I was like, well, you know, I'm the only BIPOC person over here, but let me begin by telling you that I am not a deprived person who comes from the third world. I actually come from a pretty privileged class um, in, in Pakistan. I, I do not see the, the world through a racialized lens as opposed to what, what we're being taught in this training. And as I opened up that space, the, the other four people in the affinity group were white. Uh, they began questioning what it means to be white. And uh, we had someone who is um, Eastern European who said that, you know, she doesn't really feel white in the way that white Americans might feel white over here. And once we started that conversation, it became so clear that none of these categories were working for any of us. And it was so hard to even any one of us could not be boxed in and seen as oppressor or oppressed because we are complex beings with complex and multifaceted experiences that and that's the beauty of it right that's what allows you to empathize that's what allows you to sympathize to step into someone else's shoes because you know that experience from some other dimension in your life and you can capitalize that and harness that to relate to someone else so i think this most recent experience showed to me how um or confirmed for me how inappropriate this um hierarchy of oppressor oppressed is um, and how it falls short of what the true human experience really is. I've got a final question for you, um, Amna. It's the, the ending. I was just. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> we can keep going. Um, well, I've got, uh, uh, this is a this is a big question. So you coming from Pakistan and our listeners don't know, you know, we, we've talked about this um, offline where you, you, one of your big things was you wanted viewpoint diversity and that's why you left Pakistan to get education where you could find and, and, and be immersed in these uh, differences that you were wanting. Do you think now, are you disappointed in the, coming from Pakistan, now in the US, it feels like we are flattening a lot of our conversations of flattening diversity. I mean, we're just this kind of wraps up everything that we we've been talking about. I mean, how do you feel now coming to the U.S.? Are we are we backsliding vis-a-vis um, -vis other countries? I mean, one thing I'll I'll, I'll um, say I was reading a great article the New York Times the other day put out. I was surprised actually about France pushing back on American um, diversity. Uh, even though a lot of our critical theories came from France, <laughs> we adopted them and, and massaged them into our own American variety that are now kind of spreading out across the world. And France is like, oh, no, 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 that's not. <laughs> so I, I'm curious, since you actually left Pakistan with the idea of engaging differences, and now that we're in the United States and we're seeing what's happening, what do you think? So it's, it's a again, a big and a really good question. I think. Um, 
I'd like to answer it in, in, in two ways. One, I'd like to talk about how I'm feeling about higher education uh, in the US. And then I'd like to talk about uh, society more broadly in the US. So let, let me begin with um, what I learned as, as an outsider coming into the US very early on, and I was surprised by it. Um, and here I'm talking about the broader societal level. It was how everything is divided, you know, everything is political that I know, but how everything is divided into a red and blue issue over here. Like every topic, everything is politicized in a very kind of um, party political way, which I found surprising and and it, and troubling because I feel like you you people peg you immediately as they hear your opinion on one topic, right? And then you are either blue or red or you're right or left. And it's like, well, I'm not i have a very different opinion on something else that puts me in a different camp and i struggled with that when i first came here because people i think were trying to figure me out and that's the filter they were using and i was just trying to understand what the us was all about with all their different varieties of special k and you can't make a decision when you're in the cereal aisle over here because there's just way too much um so you know i was kind of in this tension of like this immense choice and yet this binary filter through which everyone's trying to peg you um so so one one thing I noticed is how how limited the discourse is here in terms of politically how we see things uh, on every issue. Every issue is politicized over here with in a party political way, which I find troubling. Um, and they, that may not just be a U.S. thing. I recognize that we are in different times, and there is like in England. When I was in England, it wasn't so polarized, but now it is. So maybe this is something in the air and the water of the times. Um, so, so that was troubling to me and confusing to me when I first came here. But let me turn now to um, higher education. It's deeply disappointing to me. And I have friends who ask me why I'm so committed to this work or why do I feel like I need to speak out? And, and I don't know how else to explain it, but I did not move halfway across the world to live in the tundra that is Minnesota uh, and you know raise children away from my family and the context that I know um, and the ease that I know uh, of, that comes with familiarity to then be told that I cannot speak or think freely or that there are ways and prescriptions about uh, how you can form your opinions on certain things. So I find it very depressing and, and I find it very depressing that this is happening in higher education. For me, I'm not a particularly religious individual, but there's something sacred about higher education, education in general and higher education in particular, because I think you really, when you come to college is when you begin to become the person that you are and you begin to own it. And to think that we are constraining that space and we're constraining it in the name of progressive values is so disturbing to me. And it is something that I feel I cannot abide in any way, shape or form, and I must speak out against. Um, so it, it is depressing, but at the same time, I, I find hope there are young people, um, my students, um, um, students in other colleges, uh, I remember at Reed, there was this big um, controversy about the Western civilization course, and there were these protesters and these students who were coming in and shutting classes down because they saw it as white supremacists and all those kinds of things that they think are undesirable. And it was actually, uh, I think, the freshmen who stood up to these senior classmen who were protesting and said, please leave, we're here to gain an education and we want to learn. Um, so those are the people who give me hope and I hope the pendulum will um, 
I shouldn't say swing back the other way. I don't think I'm not one for extremes, but we'll settle in a place where we can swing comfortably with disagreement and um, and and be willing to learn um, with more forgiveness and grace um, and be open to making mistakes and um, and embrace our mistakes and learn from them. Jennifer, can I ask one question that we contemplated early on? For fun, perhaps. Yes. Dr. Seuss just canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Look, um, this is an interesting. Yeah, it's a it, it's an interesting question. I don't know what "canceled" means anymore in in today's society. It's a word that's very liberally used. Um, but I will talk about you know banning publication of certain things or kind of as, as an historian, I I don't believe in um, destroying things. And for me, things are always a primary text, no matter how problematic. And they're things that we will learn from. And, you know, as a young person, when I was going through my kind of um, identity awakening and dealing with or learning critical race theory and standpoint epistemology, it's very seductive. It kind of gives you this sense of, oh, you know, I've been shaped by all these forces and, um, and now I can actually speak back and it's very empowering and there is something there. But I remember wondering about um, Jungle Book, uh, this film uh, based cartoon on Rudyard Kipling's uh, book. And, you know, that the racial stereotypes in that are, are incredible. And, and I struggled with it. And when I was at some point thinking about, you know, oh, when I have children, I'm never going to show them these things, these problematic books and these problematic. Um, and then it occurred to me that if you do not engage with those you will never learn how to critique them and never learn what the problem is. So in my mind, you know, it's, it's good for us to have these conversations, but to ban things and to take them out of circulation is disturbing because I think there's so many ways in which you can learn from them and engage with them. They can actually become an anchor for you to develop your thinking as uh, we don't need to purify our younger generations. Right. We need so, to give so them the Barry tools. Weiss, uh, I saw this first because Barry Weiss tweeted about it without a comment. Mm -hmm. And then I took her tweet, um, which had an article link. And I said, what about if the foundation that publishes Dr. Seuss books continue to publish these books that are deemed problematic, but put a discussion guide in the back for parents and teachers and ask, how should we regard past images? And um, are these images truly problematic? Um, and um, I got a lot of flack um, from, from friends who argued that this was not cancel culture, even though I didn't truly argue that, um, and that we should let it go. And would you really want to read your five-year-old a book that had an image of a Chinese man in um, clad in you know traditional Chinese garb with with sticks. It tr so happens my wife is Chinese, by the way, and my wife looked at the image and said, "I have no problem with that at all." So, um, but it's but it's in a, you know I, I understand it might not be the image the first image I'd want to or the only image I'd want to show my child of a Chinese person. I'd want them to see other images as well. Um, so, you know. So are we to see this really as cancel culture? Maybe it's not cancel culture, but it's of a piece with a larger trend of trying to st strip ourselves of any controversial material that, that causes tension. And maybe that's what we're trying to move away from. Yeah, I think you've hit it on the head, David. It's, you know, I have no problems with my children saying that as long as it's not the only 
version of a Chinese person, like you said, right? And by saying that this cannot be seen anymore, I think you're taking away the opportunity for children to learn the history of why certain images are problematic and why you shouldn't use them. Mm -hmm. So this kind of like somehow that we're going to expose them to something problematic and turn them into monsters. Again, we're making leaps over there that are unwarranted and wrong, frankly. Uh, People respond to exposure in many, many different ways. Um, And we're limiting the opportunity for our younger generations to to understand things from different perspectives. So we're closing the space. Again, it's very prescriptive. We're closing the space for viewpoint diversity um, by actually constraining the materials at our disposal. What was your reaction, Jennifer? Well, you know, I I wanted to respond to something you said. So I uh, lived in China. Yes, China is my specialty in what I do. And so uh, when I lived there with my son when he was quite young, and so I bought a lot of books from Chinese authors with you know Chinese cartoons and whatnot from China, not from not American authors. And I'm laughing now, like I can even go run and probably find them where they depicted themselves <laughs> similarly, you know, and, uh, and is it, I absolutely agree with everything that was been said here. I mean, it's something that we have to show, okay, that, you know, we, the history and where we're moving. So to ban it, then we lose the history and then we just are doomed to repeat ourselves if we don't learn that history. But I think we've just become so sensitive that I'm, again, I'm, I'm repeating myself, but I'm kind of laughing because I know that there are certain depictions that the Chinese have used that are not dissimilar from what Dr. Seuss used. Um, and so uh, I think that there is a hyper sensitivity. I think there's a, something that we need to focus on because yes, you know, uh, we need to be more sensitive to people who are different and and, um, and and be more sensitive to depicting people in certain roles. Because again, as Amna said at the very beginning, we're complex. So, um, but you know, I, this goes to something else. There was, you know, they also, canceled i hate that word i don't like it either you know it's become it's become like racism you know it's like what does that even mean anymore but in disneyland they shut down the jungle ride Mm. i don't know you know what i'm talking about the one where you're in the boat and it goes around that was one of my most favorite runs and they took it off because you know they showed when you're going through africa people with their shirts off and you know spears and whatnot and so it, it it depicted a certain um stereotype but the fact was you were going through africa and at a time in africa you know there were people who were wearing grass skirts so it's like again you you cancel it's like that was a part of history is that the way africa is now you know and and so i just it, 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 it i think we are stealing that opportunity for conversation that's we're silencing ourselves I also want to, you know, build on that and say, you know, what does this mean for humor and satire? Yes. And these are humor and satire have been some of the most powerful tools to critique. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Societies or trends or um, uh, authoritarianism. Yes. And if you cannot, and and, and actually they're the smartest tools, they're smarter than any academic book ever written. Um, in the world (laughs) is what comedians do and what satirists do is and and the reason they can do it is because they they 
hook you with the joy of what it means to be alive. And we're killing the joy in things right now by prescribing how everyone must relate to things. So it's interesting that we, you know, standpoint uh, theory, which is all about appreciating experience is actually prescribing what and how you can experience something. Right. I know we're, we're ending, but I, um, I, I tweeted out yesterday that, um, that one of the saddest things about the current discourse, uh, especially with microaggressions, is that I can no longer easily ask somebody, where are you from? And even yeah. when you were on in the beginning of the, of the podcast, I was a little reluctant to ask you that, but I've had some of the richest conversations of my entire life when either I asked somebody that or they asked me that. And I find that very sad and unfortunate. I, I actually think, you know, I've had so many people ask me where I'm from and I, I consider that as someone showing interest in me, curiosity. recognizing curiosity. curiosity. I don't know why we have to be offended all the time. Yeah. And how can you go through life being offended <laughs> at every turn? Um, it's a genuine interest. And I think if we can give people the benefit of the doubt uh, that they're interested and curious, then we'll be in a better place um, in terms of how we engage. Beautiful. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing my fruit punch with me. <laughs> thank you. We're, we're going to do tequila next time. <laughs> Thanks so much. This was wonderful. I really enjoyed the conversation. I did too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say hold my drink and the conversation gets real.